This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, September the 8th, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson from the Fox Bureau in Washington, D.C. We appreciate you being here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock on demand for free at GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is there every day. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. On social media, we are at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. On the program today, Jessica Tarloff, Niall Gardner, Jack Vrett, and General Jack Keane. All to come. But first, we begin with breaking news and a Fox News alert. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. The palace has just issued uh, this statement. It says the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. The King and the Queen Consort will remain at Balmoral this evening and will return to London tomorrow. Within the past few minutes, Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. That was Hugh Edwards on BBC announcing the death of the Queen at the age of 96. She passed away sometime this afternoon, UK time, in Scotland at Balmoral Castle. And this will now trigger a whole cascade of events culminating in her funeral in 10 days' time. She is an extraordinary historical figure. She's been on the throne for 70 years. She led an extraordinary life. She's been a great friend to the United States of America. She's been here five times. Courtesy of our team at the Fox News Brain Room, let's just walk through Queen Elizabeth II and her life and her reign by the numbers. The Queen was the 40th monarch since William the Conqueror obtained the crown of England. She was the sixth female to ascend to the British throne. On October 16th of 2016, she became the world's second longest reigning monarch. A few days before that, she became the longest reigning British monarch. That was years ago, back in 2016. She marked her platinum jubilee just a few months ago, June of 2022. We talked about it here on the program. Over the course of her time on the throne, there have been 15 prime ministers in the UK, and of course she would meet with them regularly. 14 American presidents, seven popes. The queen was born April 21st, 1926. She was married to Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, 
on November 20th, 1947. She ascended to the throne on February the 6th, 1952. She became queen at the age of 25. Think about what you were doing at 25. That was after her father, King George VI, passed away. 1952. As I said, she's been the queen for 70 years. Not only has she been the queen every single day of my life, she's been the queen every single day of my parents' life. Almost no one in the United States beyond a certain generation can even recall a time when the U.K. had anything other than a queen and this queen on the throne. And now there's a king, her son, Charles, who will now go by King Charles III, 73 years of age. So basically immediately the words to the national anthem in the U.K. will change from God Save the Queen to God Save the King. Queen Elizabeth II had four children, eight grandchildren, 12 great-grandchildren. And as I mentioned, Charles, Prince of Wales, now King Charles III, succeeds her. Next in line is Prince William, Duke of Cambridge. And we will talk later in the show about the process that will play out following her death. There will be a 12-day period of national mourning. Day 10 will be her official funeral. And there are all sorts of details and ceremonies and tributes that will pour in from around the world in the days to come. The king putting out this statement just minutes ago, courtesy and via Buckingham Palace, quote, the death of my beloved mother, Her Majesty the Queen, is a moment of the greatest sadness for me and all members of my family. We mourn profoundly the passing of a cherished sovereign and a much-loved mother. I know her loss will be deeply felt throughout the country, the realms, and the Commonwealth, and by countless people around the world. During this period of mourning and change, my family and I will be comforted and sustained by our knowledge of the respect and deep affection in which the Queen was so widely held. Dated today, Thursday the 8th of September 2022, His Majesty, King Charles III, something that will take some getting used to, framing it that way. The Prime Minister, Liz Truss, who just became Prime Minister days ago, in fact, the last public photograph I believe we have of the Queen, was shaking hands with Liz Truss at Balmoral, welcoming her as the new Prime Minister. She may have performed other official duties in the interim, but in terms of one that was done with some public visibility, that would be it. And now Liz Truss, the new prime minister, on what, day two, the second full day of her prime minister tenure in that position, is now speaking to the people of the U.K. as their leader about the loss of their queen. Minutes ago... The Prime Minister, outside Number 10 Downing Street, addressed the country in Cut 28. We are all devastated by the news that we have just heard from Balmoral. The death of Her Majesty the Queen is a huge shock to the nation 
and to the world. Queen Elizabeth II was the rock on which modern Britain was built. Our country has grown and flourished under her reign. Britain is the great country it is today because of her. She ascended the throne just after the Second World War. She championed the development of the Commonwealth from a small group of seven countries to a family of 56 nations spanning every continent of the world. We are now a modern, thriving, dynamic nation. Through thick and thin, Queen Elizabeth II provided us with the stability and the strength that we needed. She was the very spirit of Great Britain, and that spirit will endure. She has been our longest ever reigning monarch. It's an extraordinary achievement to have presided with such dignity and grace for 70 years. Her, her life of service stretched beyond most of our living memories. In return, she was loved and admired by the people in the United Kingdom and all around the world. She has been a personal inspiration to me and to many Britons. Her devotion to duty is an example to us all. Earlier this week, at 96, she remained determined to carry out her duties as she appointed me as her 15th Prime Minister. Throughout her life, she's visited more than 100 countries and she has touched the lives of millions around the world. In the difficult days ahead, we will come together with our friends across the United Kingdom, the Commonwealth and the world to celebrate her extraordinary lifetime of service. It is a day of great loss, but Queen Elizabeth II leaves a great legacy. Today, the crown passes, as it has done for more than a thousand years, to our new monarch, our new head of state, His Majesty, King Charles III. With the King's family, we mourn the loss of his mother. And as we mourn, we must come together as a people to support him, to help him bear the awesome responsibility that he now carries for us all. We offer him our loyalty and devotion, just as his mother devoted so much to so many for so long. And with the passing of the second Elizabethan age, we usher in a new era in the magnificent history of our great country, exactly as Her Majesty would have wished, by saying the words, God save the King. UK Prime Minister Liz Truss, minutes ago at number 10 Downing Street, paying tribute to the Queen. Before she was Queen, at the age of 21, Elizabeth gave a speech in which she pledged to devote her life to the service of her country. And this clip is going around a lot. This was something that I think Britons have appreciated about her and listened back to these words, a commitment that she kept for 70 years after ascending to the throne a few years after this. This was, again, a 21-year-old on her birthday, the future queen in Cut 14. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone. 
unless you join in it with me, as I now invite you to do. I know that your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow, and God bless all of you who are willing to share in it. She wondered there if her life would be long or short. Well, it was long. She lived to 96 and leaves behind a grieving nation with many admirers and people who loved her. Here she was in 1953 at her coronation. Listen to Cut 16. Will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the peoples of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Union of South Africa, Pakistan, and Ceylon, and of your possession and the other territories to any of them belonging or pertaining, according to their respective laws and customs. I solemnly promise so to do. 1953. And here we are in 2022. And the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, is dead at the age of 96. We will have a lot of coverage on this subject today. We will touch on some other topics as well, but this is the biggest news in the world. An icon has died, and we will get various perspectives on her, different memories. And before we go to break in this opening segment on the show today, we are just going to play the British National Anthem which now becomes God Save the King, but was sung so many times about her as God Save the Queen to our British cousins, our British listeners. May she rest in peace. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. This time we join with all nations across the globe in a common endeavor, using the great advances of science and our instinctive compassion to heal. We will succeed, and that success will belong to every one of us. We should take comfort 
that while we may have more still to endure, better days will return. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. But for now, I send my thanks and warmest good wishes to you all. It's the Guy Benson Show. That was April 2020, early, early days of the pandemic, COVID-19, a message from the Queen, who has now died today at the age of 96, our big story that we're covering here on the program. In the last segment, we went to break with God Save the Queen, the British national anthem. Kind of odd, perhaps, for an American show to play a foreign nation's national anthem. But I think it's a fitting tribute to her, a salute to her and her lifetime of service and sacrifice to a country that is our most important ally. But I also want to take the opportunity to play our national anthem in a very specific and special context. I've played this on the air before, actually. I think it was during her jubilee, the Platinum Jubilee. One of my favorite memories, a very emotional one about the Queen. It was the day after 9-11, 2001, where she made the call to overrule hundreds of years of tradition at Buckingham Palace. And she ordered and instructed the royal band to play the Star-Spangled Banner. Cut 24. was a visceral cheer from the crowd that had gathered the day after that awful day, nearly 21 years ago, the 21st anniversary of 9-11 is this Sunday. What a gesture of solidarity and friendship. From Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, who died today, age 96. Our coverage continues coming up. With Jessica Tarloff, who spent years living in the U.K., there are some sound bites and anecdotes and stories that are just amazing about this woman who has now departed. We will discuss them with Jesse when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. 
You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is free of charge every day. And we are spending much of today's program discussing the lead story in the world, the death of Queen Elizabeth II, 96 years old. Her son, Charles, now becomes king. He is King Charles III. And joining us now from our New York studios is Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, head of research at Bustle, and she spent six years of her life in the U.K. We've talked about that on the program. In fact, very recently when I was over in London not long ago, a few weeks ago, Jesse and I were chatting about that here on the air. And, Jesse, it's good to have you back, albeit you. under sad circumstances for so many people who've admired this woman for so long. And I was reflecting on this at the top of the show. I have never known any other monarch in England than her, and neither of my parents. She's been on the throne for 70 years, prime ministers spanning Mr. Churchill to Ms. Truss, just extraordinary. Just big picture, your thoughts on the lifetime's legacy of the queen. Big picture thoughts. I'm really sad about it. I'm by no means a monarchist, um, but I was over there. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Same. Um, And I think that's how a lot of people feel today, that there's this deep admiration for this woman whose, you know, foundational principle was devotion to her country and a life of service. And that's what she talked about um, when she was first inaugurated. Um, I was listening to her first Christmas address um, where she also went back time and time again to this devotion to country and life of public service and how important that was to her. I was living in the UK for the royal wedding for when Wills, as we call him, you know, Esperance, um, when Will and Kate got married. And you just can't help but get into the mood, right? Like get into this royal mood with all the bunting, um, you know, this stuff people hang outside of their houses and the whole country was just electrified with excitement and it's not as if people didn't know that the idea of modern day monarchy is ridiculous um and that there's a lot that's been wrong with it there's a you know a long history of colonialism um that you know is for another day to discuss um but at that moment everyone was just so overwhelmed and full of love for queen elizabeth ii for the next generations of this and Um, Something that I think that she did that was so special is that a woman, you know, into her 80s and then into her 90s was actually so able and excited, I would say, to adapt and to modernize. And so she really took us from, you know, an old world into a new world Um, and everything from how she comported herself, um, the way that she ran her family. You know, she basically became surrogate mother for Harry and Will after Princess Diana was -hmm. killed in that awful car crash. In Paris, um, the way that she uh, welcomed Meghan Markle into the family, um, I don't know. I'm I'm overwhelmed with, frankly, her coolness, um, and I'm very sad that she's gone. But I can't even imagine what the last year and three or four months has been like without Prince Philip, who passed away last April, um, and she, she's in a better place now. But I'm very thankful to have gotten to live um, in a Commonwealth country um, and you know in her home city uh, for as long as I did. Yeah. And, you know, there have been some scandals in the royal family and the tabloids, especially over there, love to talk about it, but never with her. Right. And the thing is, you think about someone who's lived a life that long and has been the sovereign for as long as she was the second longest, 
you know, I guess, uh, person to sit on the throne or to reign in world history. And she had to subordinate, I would imagine, so many personal self-interested wants and desires or even needs because of that vow that she took. And while some of her offspring and their various love interests perhaps through the years uh, have not quite lived up to her standard and her example, she did every step of the way. And just the the discipline and the restraint that that requires, I think unto itself is actually quite admirable. A hundred percent. And, you know, when you say she was never the subject of it, you know that she was the puppeteer, right? Pulling all the strings with the way that the royal family controls the tabloid press there. And that was a huge undercurrent of the story of what happened with Princess Diana, you know, from the moment of divorce onwards um, to basically how they handled everything that, that got in their way. Um, it's what they, call, they call them the firm, right? That's what they, they call the royal family. Mm. And, and that's for good reason. Um, but I do believe that she always had the strength um, and kind of togetherness of the UK in the forefront of her mind, what was best for the country um, that she was the monarch for in in mind when she did that. And I loved also hearing about, you know, 15 prime ministers, 15 presidents. She only didn't meet one of them, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, which surprised me. Um, But there were even, I was listening to some earlier coverage, you know, warm moments that she shared with someone like Donald Trump, who was not her proverbial cup of tea, but she always looked for the commonalities she could find with people, you know, what you could share a laugh about. Um, And I don't know, she's just an incredibly special person um, that I think led with this very strong devotion to country, but also a clear view of what she thought was right and would carry through with that no matter what. You know, Jesse, I'm not sure if you saw some of these images and you don't want to read too deeply into anything. And, you know, is this providential? Is it mystical? You know, what do you want to call it? But oh, the rainbow with with the skies opening yeah. up over London today and then clearing and a double rainbow yeah. appearing over Buckingham Palace. I mean, that is wild. It does rain a lot there. I'm not going to lie. Uh, you do always have to have an umbrella in your in your bag. But I would say most Englishmen, actually, it's like one of their things. They're like, oh, we're not umbrella people. And they just kind of take it because the rain won't ever last that long. Um, but it definitely felt kind of like a higher power moment. And I absolutely loved it. You know, whatever people can find in these sad moments to look to, to think that there's some higher purpose to all of this or some order to the universe, all the more power to you. And and rainbows are just straight up beautiful. And what's going on right now outside of Buckingham Palace is just gorgeous. You know, people started to uh, show up late this morning, our our time when it was announced that, you know, she was under medical supervision. Um, And I just, I love the way they love their queen. And it's, uh, it's one of my favorite things about the UK. There are a few stories that I want to share with the audience because we're reading so many of the little anecdotes through so many years, and you could spend days just sifting through some of this stuff. But a couple that I thought were pretty cool. Here's one. This was relayed by a former British ambassador to Saudi Arabia, which happens to be the country in which I was born. And this story comes from 2003, where she, the queen, was welcoming the crown prince Abdullah to one of her castles. And so here's how the story goes. After lunch, the queen asked her royal guest whether he would like a tour of the estate where they were visiting. 
and prompted by his foreign minister, the urbane Prince Saud, an initially hesitant Abdullah agreed. The royal Land Rovers were drawn up in front of the castle. As instructed, the crown prince climbed into the front seat of the Land Rover, his interpreter in the seat behind. To his surprise, the queen climbed into the driver's seat, (laughs) turned the ignition, and drove off. Women were not, at the time, allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. And Abdullah certainly was not used to being driven by a woman, let alone the Queen of England. His nervousness only increased as the Queen, an army driver in wartime, accelerated the Land Rover (laughs) along the narrow Scottish estate roads. It sounds like this was at Balmoral as well. Taking all the time. uh, and, And talking, rather, all the time. Giving him sort of a tour as she was speeding through this estate. Through his interpreter, the crown prince implored the queen to please slow down and concentrate on the road ahead. She did what she felt comfortable doing. And this was almost like a hazing ritual for this leader of a country that definitely subjugated women. Women couldn't drive. And here she was clearly on her turf making a statement saying, oh, you want a tour? Great. I'll give it to you. I'm going to hop behind the wheel and I'll drive just as fast as I please. Thank you very much. I think that's a fantastic story. It absolutely is, and and one that I hadn't heard, and maybe that I'll steal from you and use on the five this afternoon. So thank you for that. Um, Uh, Yes, feel free. (laughs) One of my favorite things, it's not um, as much of a personal anecdote as the one that you just told, um, but the day after September 11th, I'm I'm sure you've seen this circulating, um, and obviously we played Oh. We played it la- uh, last segment. Oh, but thought, I'm ahead. sorry. I, no, it's okay. I'm sorry. I wasn't listening. I was in hair and makeup. No, no, no. no. You should tell it anyway. It, it, it gets. It honestly, it gets me every time. I, had I know. I started and- crying, and Tatiana, she was like, "I'm doing eyeliner." I was like, "But it's just so amazing." Anyway, <laughs> the day after September 11th, the Queen broke 600 year tradition. Um, to play the Star Spangled Banner outside at Buckingham Palace, and just such an amazing representation of this special relationship that we have um, with them. And I don't know, just absolute magic. And that loops back to what I was saying about her willingness to jump into modernity. You know, I think there would be a lot of monarchs, a lot of royals who would sit there and they would take pause, right? They would make a statement for sure if something like September 11th happened, obviously call everyone that they need to. But the idea that she would so, you know, easily and on a, you know, few hours notice break a 600-year tradition um, just showed what a maverick she was. Um, And that's the same as, you know, driving uh, the Saudi crown prince around and just saying this (laughs) is how we do things here. And the thing is, on September 12th, 2001, for her to have done that, if she had put out even a beautiful statement, it's probably not something I would have read or played on the air here today. But I've seen that clip so many times through the years, and it it puts a lump in my throat every time. Yeah. And it was more powerful than words could have been that day. And she sort of understood that, and she sensed it. And she did that for us, you know, for, for this ally of her country. And speaking of the relationship between the U.S. and the U.K., another story that I saw today that I had not heard before made me laugh out loud. This was shared on Sky News. It was an interview with someone who had been, I guess, a royal guard, one of her bodyguards, talking about a day that she was out in the countryside hiking, Mm -hmm. and she came across some American tourists. (laughs) The story's fantastic. Cut 29. And normally on these picnic sites, you, you meet nobody but there was two hikers coming towards us, and the Queen would always stop and say hello. 
and it was two Americans on a walking holiday. And it was clear from the moment that we first stopped they hadn't recognised the Queen, which is fine. And the American gentleman was telling the Queen where he came from, where they were going to next, and where they'd been to in Britain. And I could see it coming, and sure enough, he said to Her Majesty, and where do you live? <laughs> and she said, well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just the other side of the hills. <laughs> and he said, well, how often have you been coming up here? Oh, she said, I've been coming up here ever since I was a little girl, so over 80 years. And you could see the clogs thinking. He said, well, if you've been coming up here for 80 years, you must have met the Queen. I and as it. quick as a flash, says, well, I haven't, but Dickie meets her regularly. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy said to me, oh, you've met the Queen, what's she like? And because I was with her a long time and I knew I could pull a leg, I said, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times, <laughs> but she's got a lovely sense of humour. Anyway, the next thing I knew, this guy comes round, put his arm around my shoulder, and before I could see what was happening, he gets his camera, gives it to the Queen, and says, can you take a picture of the two of us? <laughs> anyway, we swapped places and I took a picture of them with the Queen and we never let on and we waved goodbye. And then Her Majesty said to me, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows us photographs to the friends in America <laughs> and hopefully someone tells him who I am. That's awesome. It is. It's truly awesome. And to have the control to be able to do that. I mean, I'm just thinking Oh, of, to take the photo. Can you imagine well, some American uh, hiker being like, hey, would you mind taking a photo with, with uh, me and this bodyguard of yours and having no idea that this is the Queen of England and she just very, you know, pleasantly... Yeah. Snap the photograph. Fantastic. Totally fantastic. I love it. May also steal that. Tune in at 5 o'clock. I'm going to be repeating all of Guy's talking points. Yeah, just, uh, just rip off all this stuff. <laughs> you know, Jesse, two more things. You're talking about sort of modernizing the monarchy. Yeah. Coming out of this imperial age into something different, doing it with a lot of dignity, a lot of grace, a lot of selflessness. There were some light moments as well that I think back to. I think it was during the Jubilee where she had that delightful interaction with the CGI Paddington bear, which was like weirdly emotional and absolutely adorable. Then another one, 2012, the Summer Olympics in London, where Daniel Craig as 007 James Bond walking into Buckingham Palace and she turns around and it's really her. You're not sure if it's going to be her. And there she is and she says something like, hello, Mr. Bond, or good evening, Mr. Bond. And the crowd in the Olympic Stadium in London, absolutely went bonkers that Her Majesty was just with a wink playing along with this sort of iconic fictional character. She had sometimes a playfulness about her that I think is pretty special or was pretty special. I think it was present almost 99% of the time. I mean, at least in what we saw, obviously we weren't in these, you know, very tough meetings that I'm sure that she had. Um, But the joy and, you know, the fun that she had with her grandkids – um, and then with her great-grandchildren, I'm just thinking about, you know, how kind of wild and off-the-wall Lewis was um, through the Jubilee. There are the, those great pictures of him kind of like pushing his mom away and, and being being the little guy. Knows full well, you know, he'll never be king, so, you know, I do what I want. And she just absolutely loved it. And you don't expect a queen to be, you know, playing with a great-grandchild the same way that anyone in our families would be. I love the Paddington um, commercial, obviously, and I was in still in London for uh, for the Olympics, and I do remember that. And people, they just couldn't get enough of it. And it makes me think, actually, and I'm I'm sure that this is find outable um, if M from the Bond books and then movies was modeled after, because it's that same kind of mm. cheeky humor, right, with the wink and the nod, and like, oh, Bond, you know. Um, so I'm going to do some research. 
as well before Please five do. o'clock. Yes, I'll report Please do. back. Jessica Tarlaw, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, as she's mentioned, head of research at Bustle, spent six years of her life over in the U.K. and just reflecting with us here on the life of Queen Elizabeth II, who died today at the age of 96. Jesse, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'll see you soon. And we'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. When I was 21, I pledged my life to the service of our people, and I asked for God's help to make good that vow. Although that vow was made in my salad days when I was green in judgment, I do not regret nor attract one word of it. The Queen in 1977 at her Silver Jubilee... She celebrated her Platinum Jubilee this past June, which is just an amazing number. But that was 1977. Twenty years later, one of the biggest tragedies in the House of Windsor history, with the death of Princess Diana in that car accident in the streets of Paris, shocked the world. There was an outpouring of grief. There had been tensions, certainly behind the scenes, bubbling out publicly involving Princess Diana and her relationship with the royal family. But the Queen making this statement in September of 1997 and cut 18. I want to pay tribute to Diana myself. She was an exceptional and gifted human being. In good times and bad, she never lost her capacity to smile and laugh, nor to inspire others with her warmth and kindness. I admired and respected her for her energy and commitment to others, and especially for her devotion to her two boys. And the father of those two boys is now King Charles III, following the death today of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II at the age of 96. Niall Gardner, former aide to Margaret Thatcher, joins us when we come back in a brand new hour of The Guy Benson Show. City in the world. Unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show. From Washington, D.C., it's the Guy Benson Show. In another hour here, between 3 and 6 Eastern every weekday, our middle hour. Thanks for joining us. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free of charge when the show is over. That's on demand every day. Totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media for extra content. For example, I was on Special Report last night, and we clipped a few of my answers. That's on Twitter. You can go watch it there, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, same handle. As we get going, in this middle hour, Fox News alert. The Dow closing up again today, 193 points in the green, closing out the day at 31,774. And if you're just tuning in and you haven't been anywhere near the news, we bring you another Fox News alert and our lead story. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, dead today at the age of 96. Her eldest son, Charles, now King Charles III, is now the King of England. And... 
instantly they have shifted over from God save the queen to God save the king, something that I'm not accustomed to saying or thinking about because for my whole life, and as I said in the last hour, my entire parents' life, they have never and I have never known anyone other than her in that position. And after 70 years on the throne, she died peacefully earlier today, according to a statement from Buckingham Palace. And with us now to discuss this further is Niall Gardner. He is a foreign policy analyst, former aide to Margaret Thatcher, and now director of the Thatcher Center for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation. And Niall, thank you very much for spending some time with us here. Uh, It's my pleasure, Guy. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I would love to just begin with your thoughts overall on this queen, her legacy in your mind, and what she means to the British people. Well, an incredibly uh, sad day, of course, for uh, for the British people uh, today. And uh, I have to say as well, also, uh, quite, quite a shock in terms of just the sheer speed that everything has happened here. And... Um, you know, I think that uh, millions of Britons will be really in a state of shock today uh, with regard to the passing of a hugely popular figure. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II was on the throne as sovereign and monarch for over 70 years, significantly longer than even Queen Victoria. And so she's been a huge part of the lives of uh, most, you know, the vast majority of British people for, uh, for many, many decades. And she will be greatly missed as someone who embodied, I think, the very spirit of the British nation. And she really represented, I think, the spirit of service, dedication, patriotism, uh, sacrifice. Uh, and, and so the, the Queen, you know, is immensely, immensely popular uh, figure who, uh, who without, without a doubt, uh, I think, lived every moment of her life for the sake of her country. And so that sense of dedication, service, sacrifice is so admirable today. Uh, and she will be missed, I think, not only, of course, by the British people, but across the free world, especially here in the United States, where the Queen also was hugely popular among the American people. Yeah, I think that's right. And just the outpouring that I'm seeing on social media among my friends and family, clearly an impact. And it's funny because, you know, we fought a war to overthrow the despotism of a king of England, and then, of course, became, after uh, some some ugliness in the early 1800s, uh, very close friends, have had this special relationship ever since. And there is this fascination with the monarchy among Americans who don't want a monarchy and yet are kind of fascinated and interested by it, intrigued by some of the drama. And there has been an enduring popularity, an enduring affection for her in particular, And I do wonder, not to put you on the spot, Niall, but is there a story or an anecdote or something that comes to your mind, whether it's personal or something, just a memory that you think helps embody who she was and might be useful for this audience to hear? Yes, actually, that's that's a very good, uh, very good question. Uh, And uh, in fact, I I met the Queen um, while attending Lady Thatcher's 80th birthday party in London. And the Queen was, uh, was a special guest of, of honour there. And, and she, I, I recalled her, in fact, sweeping uh, in, into the room. Uh, and the, the entire room of about maybe, I think, two or 300 people, absolutely enchanted by the, the arrival of, of the Queen. And uh, uh, I actually, um, I, I recall 
you know, went up to her to to introduce myself, and 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 I was struck by the just the sheer charm, the graciousness of of the Queen, but also the humility as well. I mean, you know, it, it's it's an extraordinary thing when you actually meet uh, the Queen. Uh, but I, I was just struck by her her charm, her wit, uh, and the uh, you know also by by the sheer humility of of somebody who was in many respects the most powerful woman in the world uh but uh, you know she she greeted um uh people with with such warmth uh, as though that you as though you're a member of her own family you know and so i i recall that that moment meeting the queen and i'll never forget it uh and i had the uh you know the the opportunity the good fortune to work course for lady thatcher uh, in in London, and and so I had an opportunity to to work for uh, for the Iron Lady and, and and Margaret Thatcher and the Queen, of course, two of the most powerful female uh, leaders of of our era, actually, and um, and it was just a, an extraordinary opportunity to actually be able to meet the Queen in in, in person. Mm. But I, I will forever treasure that that moment, actually. Well, since you mentioned Lady Thatcher, that was going to be my next question. I, like many Americans, watched The Crown, right? I also went to see a play with my father on Broadway a number of years ago starring Helen Mirren as the Queen. It was called The Audience, and it depicted little snapshots and vignettes of her many weekly meetings with the many prime ministers who served you know, during her reign. And based on at least those dramatic productions, you might say that there was, at least in the public imagination, a bit of a – tempestuous at times relationship between the Queen and Margaret Thatcher. I just wonder what you make of that, at least in terms of how it's portrayed in in some of these dramatizations and how you might describe the relationship between these two uh, consequential women. Yeah, great question. In fact, I I watched the the most recent series of The the Crown twice, in fact, uh, because it featured so much uh, of, of the life of Margaret Thatcher in it. Um, and, uh, you know, the crown... And Gillian I mean, Anderson as Thatcher. Uh, yeah, Gillian Anderson played Margaret Thatcher. In fact, she played Margaret Thatcher, I think, very well. Uh, but, you know, some things that they got, got right did well. But uh, I think the depiction of this kind of conflict between Margaret Thatcher and the Queen was really overdone. Clearly, there were some disagreements. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, Margaret Thatcher hugely admired the monarchy and the Queen. And the Queen, I think really had tremendous admiration for Margaret Thatcher. After all, they were the two most powerful women in the world. Uh, and and so that partnership, that relationship, was in fact much closer, I think, than than depicted in the uh, the Netflix series. And so they create this uh, sort of aura and atmosphere of tension between the two. But I think there wasn't a great deal of that. Um, and, uh, and I know from my own days working with Margaret Thatcher at a later stage, uh, she was always full of admiration for the Queen. I mean, she absolutely adored the Queen, uh, and and I think that uh, Margaret Thatcher was a was a, a huge monarchist, uh, basically in, in every respect. And and so so the Crown sort of dramatizes things, and and creates a, a kind of you know this image of of conflict and tension and so on. Which and I, I don't think there was a lot of that, frankly, between Margaret Thatcher and the Queen. But it it made made for you know entertaining television. I'd say that. Sure, sure. And you know maybe there were. Moments of tension, that would make sense. I mean, for goodness sake, she was prime minister for, what, roughly 11 years of this 70-year reign. You, you know, week in and week out, there are going to be disagreements along the line and along the way. But I I will say that The Crown 
also, I think it's shown through, at least in their depiction, the mutual respect that was there between Lady Thatcher, then Prime Minister Thatcher, and the Queen. And I, you know, I just I had to ask the question because I think for a lot of people, especially younger Americans, the insight, a little window into this Queen and her reign, a lot of it has come through entertainment. Uh, that which is why I asked the question. I also want to ask you this, Niall, and I hope it's not overly crass to get into, you know, politics and the current day, given what's happened in the the historic nature of the Queen's life. But I commented, I, I couldn't help but say it at the beginning of the show, what a difficult start to the prime ministership of Liz Truss, who just shook the Queen's hand, that, that photo that we've now all seen two days ago, and now the Queen is dead. And really her first most significant speech to the country is uh, the, one of mourning and, and leading the country in mourning. I just wonder what you think of that and more broadly speaking, what you think of Liz Truss, the new prime minister in the United Kingdom, who said when she won her leadership race and therefore was going to become prime minister, she said, and we played the soundbite here, I campaigned as a conservative and I will govern as a conservative. Your thoughts? Yeah, so extraordinary week. A new prime minister in, in Great Britain uh, just met the Queen a couple of uh, days ago, and the Queen gave her official assent to the creation of a new uh, establishment of a new British government. Uh, Liz Truss uh, is somebody who I've met on a number of occasions, and I've hosted her here uh, at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, she's a very Thatcherite politician, very conservative, and I think when she says she's going to govern as a conservative, she means it. Um, and she models herself on Margaret Thatcher in many respects, and I think that's, that's a very positive thing. Um, Truss is, is somebody who, who I think is going to be a very robust figure on the world stage. Now, there's only one Margaret Thatcher in history, uh, and that's never going to change. But I think Truss is probably the nearest thing you have in Great Britain right now to a Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and, and so an extraordinary start for, for Liz Truss uh, with, with the passing away of the Queen and, and the beginning of the era of, of King Charles III and the end of the second Elizabethan era. So uh, remarkable times. But I think Liz Truss is, uh, is, a, is a very strong principal politician, the kind of leadership that, that we need in Britain right now. I watched with some interest a bit of the first prime minister's questions this week with Liz Truss. And there was we we played it here, just this wonderful exchange with Theresa May trolling the Labour Party for never having a female leader, as opposed to three now prime ministers, women, all conservative. Uh, and, and it seemed almost like Mrs. May put the ball on the tee for Truss to hit. And she did. And it was a very funny moment. And there's a big roar of approval from the Tory benches. And, and even the Labour Party, their leader had to laugh because it was sort of a, a good a good moment. Uh, and, and you could tell. He just said, all right, you got me on this one. That's a pretty good line. I do wonder, in an age of highly polarized politics, certainly here in the U.S., but to some extent over there as well, is the Queen a figure that transcends all of that? Will there be a pause, do you think, in partisanship over these next 10 to 12 days because of what she meant to Britons of all stripes? Yeah, I think a very good good question there, uh, Guy. And, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, partisan politics um, will be uh, suspended temporarily for a few days, at least until the, the state funeral of the Queen, which is expected to take place, I think, 10 days from now, according to official protocol. We'll have to see uh, 
you know what the exact day is, but uh, I, I expect that you know the clash between the the conservatives and the the socialist opposition of the Labour Party. Um, I think those, those clashes are going to be uh, minimised in the course of the next few days as the nation unites to remember um, uh, Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, also, it's important to note that the Queen always kept out of uh, party politics. She never got involved in political issues to her great credit. Um, King Charles actually has a track record of of making controversial statements about political matters from the environment through to immigration. Uh, I expect, though, as the, the new monarch, the sovereign head of state, he's going to avoid any kind of political intervention. That would be a good thing. You do not want the monarchy involved in politics uh, at all in any way. Now, Gardner, foreign policy analyst, former aide to Margaret Thatcher, director of the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation Niall, thank you very much for spending some of your time here on this day with us. We do appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. And with that, we will step aside. Come right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We are back here on The Guy Benson Show. We've devoted the entire program thus far to the big story, the breaking news Earlier today that Queen Elizabeth II, the UK's longest-serving monarch, died today in Scotland at Balmoral Castle at the age of 96. Her son, Charles, now King Charles III. We will return to that subject coming up, but I want to now shift away to American politics, at least for a while, because there are things happening here, and I have to laugh at this. Muriel Bowser is the mayor here in Washington, D.C., and earlier she issued a declaration of public emergency because of this illegal immigration issue with the buses arriving from Texas and some from Arizona. It's become just untenable, unsustainable here in the district, and so she's declaring an emergency over this. It's so interesting. The Democrats refuse to call the border crisis a crisis. And yet, when just a small fraction of it is visited upon Washington, D.C., the mayor goes crazy and eventually has to call an emergency, an official emergency, within a matter of weeks. We talked about this yesterday. The decision of Governor Abbott in Texas to do this has been even more, I think, successful and impactful than I could have ever imagined. And he keeps forcing the opposition to say things that are so embarrassing. For example, a member of the D.C. City Council, Brienne Nadeau, who's a huge left winger, if I'm saying her name correctly, but she's way out there on the left. She's talked about the abolishment of ICE. She supports that. She has loudly supported D.C.'s status as a sanctuary city, boasting about that very publicly. Well, now she's very angry about what's happening in Washington, D.C. with these illegal immigrants. Listen to her today with absolutely no self-awareness. Cut 27. The governors of Texas and Arizona have created this crisis. And the federal government has not stepped up to assist the District of Columbia. So we, um, along with our regional partners, will do what we've always done. We'll rise to the occasion. We've learned from border towns like El Paso and Brownsville. And in many ways, the governors of Texas and Arizona have turned us into a border town. Oh, yeah. That's the point. Madam Councilwoman. It's like, wow, uh, these these governors have created this crisis. False. False. 
the Biden administration and left-wing pro-illegal immigration activists have caused this crisis, cheered on every step of the way by people like you, actually. They have not caused the crisis. They have just brought a little tiny snippet of the crisis into your backyard. To blame them for the crisis itself, I think, is just clueless. The, the ignorance and blindness is extraordinary. Then she blames them and points the finger at Abbott and Ducey for turning D.C. into a border town. First of all, not even close in terms of the volume of the arrivals. But again, yeah, that is the whole point. And she admitted it out loud, not aware that she was again making Abbott's point for him. Amazing. The Guy Benson Show continues. A story out of Illinois on crime. Wow. You have to hear it next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. As we return to the Guy Benson Show, our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free on demand every day. We've been following our top story throughout the program, the death of Queen Elizabeth II, age 96 today, as announced by the palace. And we will continue covering that story later on in the program. Before the break, I did tease something that's really a follow-up to a topic we at least touched on briefly yesterday, which is crime, a huge issue in this country, especially in a lot of urban areas. We played some of that chilling audio of the woman in broad daylight being violently robbed in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, and a ring doorbell captured the attack, and her screams were very disturbing. And unfortunately, it is anything but unusual, that sort of thing, certainly in that city, perhaps that neighborhood. But there's a real chance that things are about to get worse in Chicago and Illinois more broadly based on a new law that's going to take effect next year that I had not heard about. I hadn't even seen really a debate over its passage until there was this graphic that I saw on social media about the things that the so-called Safety Act would do in Illinois. And I looked at them, and these bullet points looked Genuinely crazy to me. They seemed so ludicrous and dangerous that I figured they couldn't be real. So rather than retweeting it immediately because I wasn't sure how accurate it was, I sent a text to one of my buddies who lives in Illinois, is running for office in in Illinois, and I asked him, is this real? And his short answer was, yeah. He said there's maybe some nuance to some of it. In some ways, it's worse than it seems. And so this is a story about crime and woke insanity that is going to take, I think, a problem that's already bad in the state of Illinois and make it worse as they follow in the footsteps of failed jurisdictions on this front, whether it's New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco. We've got officials under fire. The district attorney in SF got thrown out by the voters there. And now Illinois is looking at what happened, watching and witnessing the rash of crime and terror, misery, lack of justice, danger to law-abiding citizens. And the Democrats in Illinois have decided, yes, let's do more of that here. So I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Jack Vrett. He is a Republican candidate for the Illinois State Legislature in the 53rd District, so the State House in Springfield. He's a first-time candidate. He's a veteran of the Afghanistan War and a former criminal prosecutor. 
So that is very much a relevant part of his biography as we discuss this topic. He is running for that seat in the Arlington Heights area outside of Chicago. That's in Cook County, Illinois. And Jack and I, full disclosure, are friends going back to our days together at Northwestern. And, Jack, it is great to have you here, and it's great. You know, sometimes you send me notes that you listen to our podcast occasionally, uh, and it's a real honor to have you here as a guest on the show. Well, thank you, Guy. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so let's get into this Safety Act that was passed by the Democrats, signed by Governor Pritzker. He put out a big statement heralding the passage of the bill. He said it was going to, quote, mark a substantial step toward dismantling the systemic racism that plagues our communities, our state, and our nation, and brings us closer to true safety, true fairness, and true justice. That is what the governor has to say about this law, which kicks in in January 2023, so just a few months from now. I sent you that little infographic that I had seen on social media, and it seemed too bad to be true, and yet it is, broadly speaking, according to you, true. Uh, What can you tell us about what this law is going to do? Sure, sure. Well, the the law itself it continues this trend of, of Democrats uh, across the country naming things that, uh, that that are the opposite of whatever they do. Right? This bill is called yes. the Safety, Accountability, Fairness, and Equity Today Act, um, and you can they cobble it together to make sure that it says safety. Uh, but this is nothing. Uh, the bill will do nothing uh, to promote public safety. Uh, it absolutely will hamper the, uh, the the ability of police to do their jobs, and it's going to harm the communities and it's going to harm harm victims. And what gets most of the attention on this bill is this this feature of the pretrial fairness uh, provisions, which is the the repealing of monetary or cash bail. And when you think about how cash bail works right now, uh, pretty much anywhere in the country, you have a system where someone's arrested uh, based on the severity of, of the crime that they're charged with, based on their the characteristics of the, the defendant and their criminal history and uh, all of the other factors. The prosecutor makes a case to a judge right away and says, should this person be detra- detained pretrial? Should they be released on bond or should they be uh, released on their own personal recognizance? What this law does is it completely upends the entire system in Illinois uh, effectively effectively making it impossible for a prosecutor in most cases to make the case that a dangerous criminal needs to be detained before trial, thus meaning that someone will be arrested and it will be catch and release, that they come into the jail, they're processed, and out the door they go. Yeah, and we've seen example after example in New York City and some of the other places that I mentioned in Memphis, Tennessee, in the last couple days, some horrible stories there, people who were released either early from a sentence or who would they'd committed a crime, they'd been arrested and processed and then put back on the street only to commit an even worse crime, including an up to murder. And this law that we're talking about in Illinois, which, as again, I'll say, gets implemented uh, in, in January, it enshrines some of the very worst and craziest elements that we've seen elsewhere. I was looking at a story about this and correct this if it's wrong. But when the law takes effect January 1st next year, criminals charged with the following crimes will be released without bail because cash bail will be repealed and ended for a number of these offenses, 12 non-detainable offenses, including second-degree murder, aggravated battery, arson, and then some other 
charges such as drug-induced homicide, kidnapping, burglary, robbery, intimidation, aggravated DUI, aggravated uh, fleeing and eluding, drug offenses, and threatening a public official. These are categories of crimes for which cash bail either is, what, just going away starting in January? It's not even – like there's no discretion for prosecutors? It seems just nuts. Well, it is nuts, Guy. And what is going to happen on January 1st is every single criminal defense attorney worth their salt is going to come to court and file a petition to release all of their clients and have them readjudged based on these new standards. And it is only in the very rarest circumstances can a prosecutor make the case that folks that commit crimes uh, that uh, that you listed there uh, belong to, to be detained pretrial. So when you think about it before – the prosecutor would say, here is the, the risk of flight and that here is the, the danger to the community. Under the Safety Act now, th- there has to be a, a finding by clear and convincing evidence, which is, which is more than a regular lawsuit when you think about a, mal- a malpractice lawsuit or, or an auto accident. Um, they have to show by clear and convincing evidence that there is a specific and real present threat to another person. So to, this is an example to, to prove how ridiculous this bill is, and this is something that one of my prosecutor friends that, that's still on the line uh, relayed, is imagine someone is accused of domestic violence and murdering their spouse. Well, you won't be able to claim that the person poses a specific threat to another person because they've already killed their spouse. And you won't be able to present evidence that they're now a threat to another specific person. Those are the types of things that make it practically impossible for wow. these people to be detained. And that's why that every single criminal defense attorney with their salt is going to file that petition right away. And we're going to see uh, the, the, the gates of the jails um, just swing open on January 1st. Well, and it sounds like, based on what you just described, the default position now is going to be no cash bail. Even if you've committed second-degree murder, you come in. Unless the burden of proof is met by the prosecution, the default is you get processed and put back on the street pending trial. Is that correct? That's correct. The the default now says that the the presumption is that the defendant should not be detained. And if it's not bonkers enough, the law also says that the the criminal history of the defendant – is not relevant for the question of whether they will come back to court or not. So it doesn't Psychotic. matter that they've it's it, right. It doesn't matter. And so the, the the prosecutor can't even put in evidence of that. Now the other thing what happens is the that uh, this bill also does other things that are, are uh, ridiculous. It also says that it changes the um, the way that electronic monitoring works. And these are these ankle bracelets, right? So the person maybe is not a threat to the community that we we need to keep them locked up, but right now they can have the ankle bracelet and we'll monitor their behavior. Under the Safety Act, criminals now get 48 hours that they can violate the terms of the electronic monitoring before law enforcement can do anything about it. They get 48 hours free to roam the city, do whatever they want, and as long as they make it back to home base before those 48 hours uh, expire, uh, there's there's no harm, no foul in terms of losing their their uh, their <laughs> their bond. Like I'm, I'm almost speechless. I cannot believe this is what they've put in. We're calling it a bill. I just want to be clear. This is law. It was law. I, I was passed. It was signed by the governor who bragged all about it. It will become the law of the land in Illinois January the 1st. And I want to talk actually about the process, the legislative process in a second. But one other thing, Jack, that you were telling me about in relation to this safety act, which again, a total misnomer, a joke of a name, this just like democratic branding, it's the opposite of what this bill does. You were talking to law enforcement officials 
And these are prosecutors of both political parties. These are just cops on the beat, officers who have to go out there and, and put their lives on the line. They've been expressing all sorts of deep concerns to you as a candidate for office in Illinois, one of which is the fact that – explain this to me. Cops can't really pursue criminals in their cars anymore. What is this about? Sure. So this is uh, more of a uh, an outflow of our, our – our local state's attorney here in Cook County, um, uh, Kim Fox, and oh, disaster. Um, some of the radical decisions of, of certain members of our judiciary. But what they've done now is the, the, the police are no longer to engage in police uh, vehicle pursuits unless they're able to make a determination at the time that they initiate the pursuit that uh, they have to make a proportionality balancing test to say, um, does the risk of injuring other civilians in the pursuit, um, is that outweighed by the specific threat that this person, the the, the, uh, the accused or the defendant that, that's fleeing the police, is going to commit, recommit again? Um, so because of that, what I have been told, and I, I, I have not verified this, but I, a number of law enforcement officers that I trust have told me that currently in Cook County, if someone, they, they turn on their, their, their lights and they're trying to pull someone over and they don't stop, they just speed up, the police just turn off their lights and find someone else. So the criminals know that they cannot, and this is now in Cook County, but this is going to expand to the entire state on January 1st in Illinois. The criminals know that the cops can't chase them. So there's some reasonable suspicion. They're speeding. There's some suspicious report, whatever it might be. The police car comes up, but the cruiser comes behind this car potentially with criminals. The criminals know that if they just speed up and don't pull over, the lights and the sirens are on. We've all been taught forever. There's a cop behind you with the lights and sirens on. You pull off to the side, and the officer then has some interaction with you. The lesson now for criminals in Cook County is just speed up, and the cops can't do anything about it. And that lunacy is going to be exported to the entire state because of a bill called the Safety Act that's now law. That's that's sort of the upshot? Uh, yes, sir. That's correct. I mean, it it just it it doesn't feel real. It is surreal that this is something that people introduced, debated, presumably passed and it was well, signed into law and then celebrated. How did this thing pass without some sort of a you know national attention or some sort of outcry? I follow politics relatively closely. I did not hear anything about this until a few days ago as it's like it's already a done deal. Right, right. Well, for those of us that are, are in this space, it was something that we were aware of, uh, that we would care about public safety and care about the criminal justice system. We knew about it right away. But this was not your regular bill that was debated um, in, in the session um, for, for all the, the news agencies to see. This was presented in the middle of the night in January and voted with ah, very little debate in the middle is. of the night. And it had so many technical defects in it um, that were catastrophic that there have been multiple, uh, we can call them trailer bills, that are passed after the fact to fix errors, uh, to delay in, uh, the uh, uh, entry date for certain provisions because it was so um, because it was so ridiculous. And that's the problem of just having one person or, or one group of individuals put an 800-page piece of legislation on the table and then because we're in Illinois, we have a Democratic supermajority in the Illinois legislature. They can pass whatever they want without yep, ever one party rule. any one-party rule. Absolutely. They've got the, the, the legislature and they've got the governor. So um, whatever they want, they can get done. And they railroaded this thing through. It's crazy. It is truly crazy. 
and it is now the law implementing in January. And you talked about those supermajorities, Jack. You're trying to help break that with your race in the 53rd District of Illinois to the State House. Last question, is this issue resonating? When you talk to voters with your background as a veteran and a prosecutor, is this the type of thing that's moving the needle with voters, or might it take a, a bunch of criminal-related disasters next year for people to wake up? So people are beginning to, to wake up because we are seeing a, an increase in crime in the northwest suburbs, um, and people do care about it. But what really crystallizes this for them is actually a different bill um, that was proposed by my opponent, Mark Walker. Uh, it's called House Bill 3447, and this bill – one of the things that it does is it lowers the criminal penalties for possession of fentanyl. Now, in Illinois, like everywhere else, we are in the middle of a synthetic opioid uh, epidemic um, with thousands of, of overdoses and thousands of people who've lost their lives. And this bill says that instead of just one gram, possession of one gram of fentanyl being a felony, now it's less than three grams. Now, three grams might not sound like a lot to a lot of folks, but three grams of fentanyl is strong, is strong enough for, to kill 1,500 people, and it, c- it contains thousands of doses of this drug. So we're talking wow. about dealer I mean, quantities of this drug. And and the my opponent, Mark deadly. Walker, he sponsored this bill. Um, and, you know, granted, I think that, that uh, people that are suffering from addiction need treatment. This is not hypothetical to me. I had a dear family yeah, member but, that was But these are dealers that you're talking about, life. of this, uh, Jack, of this very, very deadly drug. And to go soft on fentanyl, at this moment in particular, it's just more madness. So we'll be watching your race and many others on election night very closely. Jack Vrett, Republican candidate out there in Illinois, 53rd District, veteran, former prosecutor. Jack, got to run, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Guy. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're back on The Guy Benson Show. I saw this on social media the other day, so I gave it a whirl. The Economist has this widget where you can enter your info, not your specific info, but just general stuff about yourself. And then they will give you a rating of how likely you are to vote for Republicans or for Democrats. So it's like, you know, your race, your religion, whether you are straight or LGBT, your gender, your age, whether you attend church regularly, are you married, do you have kids, did you attend college, what kind of degree do you have, what's your approximate income, do you live in the suburbs or in an urban area or out in the country, what region of the country do you live in, do you speak Spanish or not, these are the categories. So I filled out all of mine, and the widget, the algorithm, spat back at me that I had an 83% chance of voting Democrat. I guess the algorithm isn't perfect. Little oops. Kind of like bucking the trend from time to time. We return to our lead story in the next hour, the death of the queen on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. It's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
It is the final hour here on The Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. Thank you for tuning in between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com for everything you need to know about the program, including our free podcast at the end of the show. It's on demand, no charge. That's every day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us, social media, Instagram and Twitter, at GuyBensonShow. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. And I encourage you to check it out. Very refreshing, really year-round, even as we turn toward the autumn side of things here in the U.S. I recommend the Long Drink. Always drink responsibly, 21-plus only. And you can find out more at thelongdrink.com. And, you know, I was debating mentioning this, but I'm going to. And maybe you can say it's a totally shameless plug for a sponsor in the context of today's big news that the Queen has passed away at the age of 96. The Long Drink is a gin-based cocktail. And I don't think that the Queen would object to a little plug for gin. She loved gin-based cocktails. In fact, reportedly had one every day for years Not quite the long drink, but we might maybe break out some long drinks tonight. We have some guests coming over in her honor, a little bit of gin. And I will point out, if you're not a gin fan, even folks who don't love gin, unlike the queen, enjoy the long drink. So I just wanted to point that out. I'm a gin drinker myself. And when I found out that she loved gin, it was just a little bit of like camaraderie that I felt toward the queen which is, uh, she is the subject of the biggest story in the world today. And let's just bring in the Fox News alert. As Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, at the age of 96, has died after more than 70 years on the throne. Her eldest son, Charles, Prince Charles, the Duke of Wales, is now King Charles III. His eldest son, William, Prince William, who is the Duke of Cambridge, he is now next in line for the monarchy and for the throne. And we open the show today with a number of tributes to the Queen, and there will be many memories and anecdotes and stories that I think will come to the fore in the days to come over the course of this highly regimented protocol that is in place after her death. And this actually reminded me when when this story broke earlier that she was in very dire straits health-wise and was resting comfortably, which was sort of a a telltale phrase that was out there for public consumption. I was reminded of a story that Politico published last year and it was a little bit controversial. It was almost exactly a year ago, September 3rd, 2021, Politico obtained documents that spelled out precisely what the protocol would be in the event of the Queen's death. And I just want to read from that story because I know some people are wondering, you know, what comes next now that she is gone. There's a lot of curiosity around the whole process. Unsurprisingly, it is ultra formal, and they've thought about this very carefully, and there's a whole playbook that they developed And perhaps a few things might change here or there, but let me just read to you from this Politico story, again published about a year ago. The U.K. government's plan for what will happen in the days after the death of Queen Elizabeth II 
codenamed Operation London Bridge and long shrouded in secrecy, can now be revealed. Snippets have trickled out over the years from suggestions that the prime minister will be alerted by a phone call from a civil servant telling him or her, quote, London Bridge is down. But now the full extent of the preparations undertaken by the royal family and the cabinet office's bridges secretariat can be revealed for the first time. After Politico obtained a series of documents laying out in granular detail how Britain will respond when the day comes. And that day, of course, now has come today, September 8th, 2022. The documents, Politico reports, show the extraordinary level of action required by all arms of the British state, including a vast security operation to manage unprecedented crowds and travel chaos that could see, in the words of one official memo, London become, quote, full for the first time ever. The documents reveal plans for the prime minister and his cabinet, or her cabinet in this case, to meet the Queen's coffin at St. Pancras Station and for the new king, Charles, to embark on a tour of the U.K. in the days before the official state funeral. In the hours after the Queen's death, a, quote, call cascade will take place informing the prime minister, the cabinet secretaries, and a number of the most senior ministers and officials of her death. The prime minister will be informed by the queen's private secretary, who will also tell the Privy Council office, which coordinates government work on behalf of the monarch. And I will just briefly pause here to note there were some reports that we started to get rumors Earlier today, hours before the announcement that, in fact, the queen had died and there was this cascade happening that I guess started to leak out. But no one reported it, at least no one reputable reported it until it was official and announced by Buckingham Palace. Internally, the queen's date of death will be referred to within the British government. This is Politico again as D-Day. Each following day leading up to the funeral will be referred to as D plus one, D plus two, and so on. Upon receipt of the news, flags across Whitehall, which is sort of the government zone in London, will be lowered to half-mast. The aim is that this can be done within 10 minutes. In a sign of the times, many of the immediate plans related to social media and you know, Twitter and Instagram and all of that, the royal family will announce plans for the queen's funeral, which is expected to be held 10 days following her death. The prime minister will be the first member of the government to make a statement. All other government members and ministers will be instructed not to comment until after the PM has spoken. And sure enough, earlier today, in fact, in our first hour, we had played it. It had just happened at number 10 Downing Street, the brand new prime minister who was just officially welcomed by the Queen in Scotland two days ago, Liz Truss, came out wearing black and gave a brief, roughly three-minute statement expressing her grief and her condolences as the U.K. enters a period of mourning. The Ministry of Defense, back to the story, will arrange for gun salutes to take place at all saluting stations. A national minute silence will be announced. The prime minister will hold an audience with the new king, 
King Charles, who will deliver a broadcast to the nation. That could happen, it looks like, maybe potentially tomorrow at 6 p.m. local time, where there would be the, the audience, the meeting, and then a broadcast. And then this story really goes piece by piece, day by day. And I would imagine some of this minutia is not of great interest to some of you. I think there are other people who follow this stuff closely who would find it absolutely riveting. Let me give you just a couple of the highlights. So D-Day plus one, meaning tomorrow, there will be a whole series of meetings of various councils, including senior government uh, officials, to proclaim King Charles as the new sovereign. On D-Day plus two, actually one more on D plus one, at 3.30 p.m., the prime minister and the cabinet will hold an audience with the new king. Ministers told not to bring their spouses. Then I guess the broadcast would be at 6 p.m. local time, London time tomorrow. We'll see if those exact specifics play out, but that was the written down plan. Then D-Day plus two, which would be Saturday, the Queen's coffin will return to Buckingham Palace. And they had different contingencies. So if she were to die in London, there would be this. If she were to die at a residence in Norfolk, England, eastern England, then there would be another set of circumstances. And then here's another one. If she dies at Balmoral Castle in Scotland, which is what happened, Operation Unicorn will be activated, which obviously has already happened meaning that her body will be carried down to London by royal train if possible. If not, Operation Overstudy will be triggered, meaning the coffin will be transferred by airplane. The prime minister and ministers will attend a reception to welcome the coffin back to London. On D-Day plus three in the morning, King Charles will receive the motion of condolence at Westminster Hall, and in the afternoon he will embark on a tour of the United Kingdom starting with a visit to the Scottish Parliament and a service in Edinburgh, Scotland, which is a beautiful city, by the way. And so obviously you hear of you know the Queen of England. That's how she's generally referred to. But there's the whole United Kingdom, which includes Scotland. It includes Northern Ireland. It includes Wales. Then there's the Commonwealth beyond. But King Charles, even before the funeral happens 10 days on, will start as the king this tour of the United Kingdom. And stop one is Scotland, which is where his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, died earlier today. And just as a parenthetical aside from my vantage point, there has been all this discussion about Scottish independence. They had a referendum a few years ago that failed. You know, it it failed clearly, but at least somewhat narrowly. There are some people who would like to try again. I wonder if the Queen's death has any impact on that. The fact that she died in Scotland, this huge national moment, and really international moment. The new king coming straight to Scotland in his first stop, I I wonder what impact that might have. D-Day plus four, King Charles will go to Northern Ireland, Belfast, where he will attend another service this time at St. Anne's, that's a cathedral in Belfast. Skipping ahead to D-Day plus six through D-Day plus nine, there are a number of different things, including a trip to Wales for the new king, where he will receive another motion of condolence 
by the Welsh and at the Welsh Parliament and attend a service in Cardiff, which is the capital city of Wales, part of the United Kingdom. And then as the preparations for the funeral are underway, the Foreign Office will be tasked with arranging the arrivals of heads of state and VIPs from abroad. And there will be many, I would imagine, coming in. And so just the security situation will be quite challenging, you would imagine. I wonder who we will send. The Queen interacted with virtually every president during her lifetime. She's been to the United States five times. We'll see who the United States sends. Meanwhile, the Home Office in the U.K. will be responsible for the security. So the the logistics of the heads of state and foreign VIPs, that'll be the Foreign Office. The Home Office will deal with that very considerable security situation. The Prime Minister and the Queen have agreed, so this was in advance, that the day of the state funeral will be considered a day of national mourning. And that would be D-Day plus 10. The state funeral itself at Westminster Abbey, this very famous church in London, right by you know Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament right there, where so many happy occasions. You know, you can think of with some of these weddings, uh, you can think about coronations, and then here will be uh, the funeral of the Queen, Westminster Abbey, D-Day plus 10, and at midday on that day, 10 days from now, there will be two minutes of silence across the United Kingdom. So those are the details, as reported last year by Politico. Really interesting, and we'll see how closely that hues to the reality. I'd like to leave you with this segment with Cut 20. This is the Queen back in 2016 on Christmas in her speech to the country. Some beautiful words. Let's listen. When people face a challenge, they sometimes talk about taking a deep breath to find courage or strength. In fact, the word inspire literally means to breathe in. But even with the inspiration of others, it's understandable that we sometimes think the world's problems are so big that we can do little to help. On our own, we cannot end wars or wipe out injustice. But the cumulative impact of thousands of small acts of goodness can be bigger than we imagine. Rest in peace. It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, even though it's a bit of a glum day with the passing of Her Majesty the Queen. Something that many Americans will be talking about tonight and tomorrow is the return as you may have guessed from the song on the broadcast of NFL football with the defending champions, the L.A. Rams, taking on the Buffalo Bills this evening. It'll be an NBC broadcast kickoff around 820 p.m. Eastern time. And I'm a college football guy personally, but I know NFL is king in terms of the ratings. Great matchup to start the season. My Giants, we'll see how they do this year at Tennessee for the full slate of games on Sunday, actually with Northwestern's own Mike Kafka calling the plays on the offensive side of the football for the G-Men. But, Dan, I know you're a big sports guy. You're an NFL fan. This is a compelling matchup. You've got the defending Super Bowl champions and a team that got tantalizingly, excruciatingly close to the Super Bowl in a very good Buffalo team tonight. Who you got? 
I don't know. I mean, I love Josh. I love me some Josh Allen on the Buffalo Bills. Um, but you got to go with the Rams. I mean, I, I, Stafford there. You know, I like. I like the team. At home. Yeah, at home. I like how they're looking. And the season opener, I just got to go with the Rams. Do you have a team we haven't talked about? This. Are you a Giants fan? No, I have a random NFL team. I'm actually a Green Bay Packers fan. Oh, um, why? Yeah, it's a weird, like, my my one of my best friend's family, um, they always loved Vince Lombardi. So I just kind of, when I didn't really have a team growing up, I went with them. Um, I love Aaron Rodgers. Um, so I've been following him and uh, just big Packer fan. I have nothing against the Packers, just in case, like, my, my tone there in that question. I, that was not discussed, just surprise. I know some of my friends who are big Bears fans, of course, have a bone to pick with the Packers, that huge rivalry. Have you been to Lambeau? I have not. That's a big uh, bucket list of, of mine. Totally. Um, but I haven't been Same. there yet, no. Yeah, maybe we should go at some point together. I've got to get to a game at Lambeau Field at some point. Despite not being a huge NFL fan, I usually put it on in the background. Like, I watch Red Zone on mute while I'm doing some work around the house on Sundays, whereas Saturday is my football day. Speaking of which, go Cats, beat Duke. That's coming up Saturday. Then the NFL in full swing starting on Sunday. But the marquee kickoff game this evening, as I said, Bills, Rams, I will certainly be watching some of that game. I think many millions of Americans will as well. We'll take a break. When we come back, General Jack Keane is here. I want to ask him about Ukraine, some new developments there. Also get any thoughts he might have on Queen Elizabeth II, her legacy on this day of her death. Jack Keane next on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are back on The Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, our podcast, is free. Every day, everything you need to know about the show is there at our online home, GuyBensonShow.com. With us now is General Jack Keene, a retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, good to have you back. I'm delighted to be here, as always, Guy. Thank you. Well, I want to start with this. The news breaking just hours ago that Queen Elizabeth II died at the age of 96 earlier today. We will get into current events and matters of global import in a moment here. But I'm just wondering if you have any reflection on the life of the queen. Yeah, I I certainly do. My mother uh, was British, so I I have that kind of family connection to it. she grew up in a working-class family uh, in London in a working-class neighborhood and emigrated to the United States, uh, you know, with her with her mother and father and siblings uh, prior to World War II. So we've always had a connection uh, to England, you know, as a result of it. My, and my mother married an uh, American Irishman, uh, which at the time uh, was a little controversial, the Brits and the Irish— <laughs> kind of going at each other a little bit. But, yeah, my reflection has, is like anybody, is is the incredible tenure uh, that uh, her reign and, and how it started, I think, in particular for me, uh, because her uncle was supposed to be the king, and he decided to marry an American woman 
who was divorced, and as as such, uh, her father became the king. And obviously, he had not been preparing for anything like that. So she went through World War II uh, with her father as king. And I think uh, that helped to forge a relationship uh, that became very strong with America and and a relationship that she has had uh, and a welcome relationship on her part with American presidents for all of these years because they knew full well um, that uh, England could not have survived uh, without the assistance from America. Um, Franklin Roosevelt, the part he played with uh, with Winston Churchill, uh, is quite historical, and America's role in in uh, literally saving Europe uh, from the tyranny and horror of the Nazis uh, is well known. But I think it had a huge influence on her uh, in terms of her respect and devotion to America and her appreciation of the of the relationship. Uh, that she saw her father go through, and and then she took over uh, post-World War II, I think around the Korean War, and um, as, a, as a young uh, 25-year-old. So I think when you look at monarchies, there's a tendency to, uh, be, to be, I think, in our modern age, to be dismissive of them. But, you know, for the Brits, anybody that knows the British knows that this monarchy really means a lot. You know, to the British people, because it speaks of their of their continuity, and we've had we had a monarch that uh, I, I mean, her restraint and never getting involved in anything political for all of those years, when um, <laughs> she certainly had views and thoughts about him, um, and and then I think the humanness of her life, it, it, you know, she. I think what divorces in in our country, I think around forty or fifty percent, and and um, you know three three of her children uh, also went through divorces, and 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 one of them was uh, you know quite public uh, as a result of it, uh, you know with her oldest son Charles and Diana. So I mean, they what happened to them happened to many British families as as well. But the way she's handled herself through the years, the dignity, the grace, um, it, it, the unstatedness uh, of the way she carried herself uh, was really uh, was really quite quite remarkable. And and I think the symbolism of continuity uh, that seventy years provided uh, as queen, it, you know, is really quite extraordinary. I think people around the world, when they think of a monarchy, this is the one that people think of, and and and, and I think most have, uh, regardless of how people feel about monarchies, I think most have uh, genuine respect for her and yes, and what she, what she represented. Yeah, seventy years this is an amazing number, and you mentioned what many Americans and Brits refer to as the special relationship between our countries and the Queen really embraced it and in some ways exemplified it at times. And I think that's part of the reason why so many Americans are mourning her loss today. General Keene, I do want to ask you about Ukraine and other matters. Number one, there has been at least some narrative emerging that the Ukrainians are on the march and they are making gains in that country against the Russians, the invaders. 
Is that something that you're seeing on the ground based on your sources and your information that the Ukrainians, I know we talked a few weeks ago about this, and it seemed like they had maybe turned a bit of a corner. Is that progress, in your estimation, continuing? Yeah, most definitely. Um, I chair the Institute for the Study of War and and uh, the think tank here in, in Washington, D.C., and they are going at this 24-7 and actually have a following of 100 million people uh, worldwide. So, um, that that's my source and knowledge base, and you know, talk to them every single day. Uh, and, and what we're seeing, yes, they are beginning to take a territory in what they refer to as the Hershon Oblast. Oblast is another name for what we would describe as a province or uh, a county. Um, and but don't think of it as massive tanks and artillery attacking and rolling over towns and, and territory, and then heading for Kherson City, which is their goal, and then fighting block by block and building by building. They're not doing that because they know they will take casualties and they're trying to preserve their forces. But they do want to retake territory. They have the will to do it, and they have a lot of imagination. And, and uh, we have seen that. Uh, time and time again. So what they are doing is they've cut off the city of Hersan. They've damaged the bridges so it cannot be resupplied. And then I think uh, they're going to fight the Russians as the Russians attempt to withdraw uh, or move uh, from the city itself. And 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 also they're taking uh, the surrounding towns, and they're being very careful because while the Russians have pummeled and destroyed their towns and their neighborhoods and cities, uh, the Ukrainians who have not conducted a major offensive operation don't want to do that. They don't only, they're obviously trying to preserve their fighting force, reduce casualties, but also not destroy uh, the buildings and, and, and commercial entities that the Ukrainians are using. That, yes, it, it is a positive thing. It's not going to be a, a massive combat arms armored force attacking and rolling uh, through towns and cities uh, over the course of a few days. This is going to go slow, but the Ukrainians hope steady. And will, in time, their plan is to regain sufficient territory. The Russians, by comparison, uh, have reached a, something of a culminating point. They're stalled. They, they've taken the eastern portion of the Donbass region, which became their priority after they failed to take the capital city of Kiev, and, and they intended to take the western portion, but they, they have no operational momentum. And I've been in the Pentagon for a couple of days going through briefings on a number of things, uh, Ukraine being one of them, and uh, They've taken somewhere in a neighborhood of 25,000 killed and 65,000 wounded. Now, that, that, that figure that I'm talking about uh, for a force that's under 300,000 is absolutely staggering. Um, and 80% of Putin's combat arms maneuver force is in Ukraine. 80% of his army of this fighting portion of his army is in Ukraine, and it is being seriously hurt. Uh, so, yes, what that has forced Putin is, to do is reassess 
come to the conclusion, Guy, that this is not going to end in a few weeks or a few months. This may take a few years. And he knows he's in a protracted war. And as a result of that, he has not gone to full mobilization, which is what he should do. But he doesn't want to do that because that will arouse the Russian ethnic population and the Russians in Moscow in particular that he's concerned about, that the, the reality is that this operation in Ukraine is failing, which is something they have never shared. Uh, with mm-hmm. the Rus- Russian people. No, they, they've so taken called- great pains, right, great pains to yeah. avoid that truth seeping out into the Russian consciousness collectively. They've attempted to really censor that information. They've done so with a fair amount of success, at least so far. General, I do want to ask you just to close here, two quick questions. Number one, what can you tell us about this nuclear facility that seems to be in some danger And it seems like the Russians have been extremely reckless in their handling of that facility. That's one that's inside Ukraine. And then secondly, the U.S. announcing $2.6 billion more in Ukraine-related military aid to help them fight the Russians. I know there are some Americans who wonder, is this a good use of our resources? Some people questioning that at this point. What's your response to that? So two questions to close. Yeah, well, uh, real quick. Um, the Russians have made a military base out of this nuclear facility, and they've also uh, conducted art- artillery barrages in the vicinity of the facility, so much so that they have damaged a portion of it. Uh, and they Insane. have done that and blamed it on the Ukrainians, which is uh, reckless is a good word to use here in, in describing that. Uh, it normally it, – it's the largest nuclear reactor uh, facility in the world. Uh, it has six nuclear reactors there. Only two have been up, and I think they're now down to one. They had to take it off the electrical grid just recently, at least for a time being, because of the uh, the Russian artillery uh, attack, which led to a fire. Uh, there's thousands of Ukrainians that work at the facility, but there's also Russians sitting on top of them uh, at, at that facility. It is a dangerous situation. Uh, to say the least, uh, the fact that the Russians are so irresponsible that they're willing to deliver fires in, in the vicinity of a nuclear re- reactor is, is extraordinary. The uh, the arms to the Ukrainians, out, so the audience understands, it is truly making a difference. The HIMARS have enabled the Ukrainians to inflict significant damage on Russian artillery, Russian ammunition depots, supply depots, so much so that it has curbed and impeded the Russian operation. And they are absolutely applauding America for giving them those kind of sophisticated high-end weapon systems. Listen, Russia has ambitions to take Ukraine and to take the Eastern European former Soviet countries, focusing initially on the Baltics. That is his design. If we can defeat the Russian army in Ukraine, their opportunity to do that and impede on United States national interests and NATOs in Europe would be decisive. And the money that we're putting there avoids the eventuality of American troops having to fight the Russians in Eastern Europe. Let's defeat this army where it stands in Ukraine. Yeah. And that money is unbelievably well spent in terms of U.S. interest and American security.
All right, because if he were to succeed, Putin and the Russians were to succeed in this, then the next step potentially could be a NATO ally. And we are treaty bound to then come to their defense. And then it's not a debate around boots on the ground. It's an obligation. If you can stop the Russians and crush them in this war of aggression on their own volition in Ukraine, I think that's really the key here to your point, And as well said, General Jack Keane, retired four star general chairman, as he mentioned, of the Institute for the Study of War, Fox News, senior strategic analyst. General, we always appreciate your insights and some of your thoughts today on this historic day with the passing of Queen Elizabeth II earlier this afternoon. General, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it very much. Always enjoy talking to you and your audience. And with that, we will step aside and come right back. A short home stretch, an interesting story to share with you. Bookending today's show. You don't want to miss it. Straight ahead. Guy Benson will be right back. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, Thursday edition. GuyBensonShow.com podcast. Always free. Thank you for listening. Well, it's been a bit of a difficult show talking about the death of Queen Elizabeth II. That news breaking earlier this afternoon. Also, here at home, legendary TV journalist Bernard Shaw, who spent much of his career at CNN, dying today at the age of 82. And just talking about death, obviously, you look back on someone's life, you pay tribute to them after they're gone. But at the risk of sounding corny, there is that circle of life that goes on and on, long past all of our times. And here at the show today, we're going to close with an example from the other end of that cycle. And an amazing story from producer Christine on the train today coming into New York City. She texted us. It's like, of course, this would happen to Christine. And on a day marked by the death of someone very prominent, Christine, you were witness to the process, at least, of the arrival of a new life on this planet under rather unusual circumstances. Yes. I mean, talk about baby on board. I was on the train going into New York City, and all of a sudden, the train conductor gets on the speaker and said, are there any doctors or nurses on this train? And, you know, I'm like, oh, maybe somebody passed out. And then he comes on again and he says, please, we need assistance. There is a lady who is having a baby. And then he gave the car number. And it was my car. (laughs) You were right there. Was your instinct to jump up and do something? Because knowing you, that's probably what you wanted to do and maybe not the best idea, though. Well, I did. Of course. That's the first (laughs) thing I want to do is get to wherever, you know, the The scene is. is. Yeah. So and I figured she's probably alone. I doubt her significance with her. So I thought maybe I could hold her hand or something. But the conductor, when I went to get up, he's like, no, everybody sit down. And then he made an announcement. Everybody, please stay seated. And then we saw, I saw two doctors come. They put like a blanket down and then they put her down on the ground, like on the train. And all I heard was the doctor go, I see the head. And I was like, OMG, are we about to see a baby? But as that was happening, we were in, you know, that tunnel to get to New York City. And we pulled right in and there was a whole bunch of, you know, medics and I thought they were just going to take her off the train, but that would be silly. They all came onto the train, and we had to single file it out another way. So I think that woman had a baby on our train today. 
Yeah, I think that's almost certainly the case. A new life born in New York City in a train car right near producer Christine on this day marked by death, new life. Just an interesting way to end today's show. And I'm glad, Christine, for the baby's sake and the mother's sake that you didn't intervene, despite perhaps your instinct. Best wishes to the mom and to that baby as well. Back here tomorrow for the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. Good night. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.